essay on atheism. Self-existent and eternal, the ruler of all truth, the fountain of all law, the exemplar of all moral perfection, the designer and final cause of the harmony of the universe, that is, of all his works. My moral sense or moral reason or conscience constrains me to believe that God has revealed himself to me. 1. Conscience is defined to backslashes dictame and rationes. It is the reason judging of right and wrong by an intellectual act together with a concurrent sentiment or feeling of the moral sense which affirms the duty of doing right and forbids the perversity of doing wrong. That such is a judgment of the reason and sentiment of the heart, or as a weighty writer has interchanged the words a sentiment of the reason and a judgment of the heart, and that it exists in all men needs no proof. The nature of man bears witness to it. It is a communist census, and any man who has it not, or says he has it not, is either a loser's natures or a prevaricator, that is, either untruthful or not human, for man is a rational and moral being. 2. But this moral sense or moral reason bears library St. Mary's College witness also, that when we do right we are conscious of an interior peace and joy which I will call happiness, that when we do wrong we are conscious of the reverse, that is of unhappiness. In the measure in which we do right we are the happier, in the measure in which we do wrong we are the more unhappy. If in all things and always we were to obey this dictate of our moral reason, we should have an inward peace, which no outward pain could take away. 3. We have already affirmed the betweenness and the cause of our being there is a likeness. Our consciousness, therefore, of this moral nature in ourselves implies that the cause from which we spring is also a moral agent. 4. And this likeness lays upon us the law of imitation. We are bound to be more like, that is to grow in likeness to him. As a moral agent and person he is our example. The more we do right the more like to him we grow, and in the measure in which we are like him in that measure we have an inward peace, a happiness and a consciousness that by conformity to our first cause, we are being elevated in the scale of our own perfection as man. 5. This appears to me to say plainly that we were made to know, to imitate and to conform ourselves to our cause or maker, and that in such knowledge and conformity consists the perfection of our nature and of our happiness. And here I take leave to call my cause or maker God. 6. If then our perfection and our happiness consist in our knowledge of God and in our conformity to him, such knowledge and conformity are the direct and necessary to our perfection and our happiness. 7. Therefore without such knowledge, conformity would be impossible, and without such conformity, our perfection and our happiness would be impossible. 8. How then, without violating my moral sense and reason, can I believe that he who made me has so hid himself from me that I cannot know him, and, therefore, cannot attain the perfection and happiness that my nature demands. 9. My moral nature therefore, both by its reason and by its moral sense, constrains me to believe that God has made himself known to me in order that by such knowledge I may be conformed to him, and by conformity attain the perfection and happiness proper to the nature in which he has made me. 10. But this knowledge can come only from himself, and until he makes himself known, that is, reveals himself to me, I cannot know him. I am constrained, therefore, by a necessity of my moral reason, 
to believe that God has revealed himself to me. 11. Where, then, is this knowledge to be found? First in the order of nature. The whole of nature is a revelation. The opposition implied in the words and ideas of natural and revealed is illogical and erroneous. Revelation is twofold asterisk natural and supernatural. Natural revelation and supernatural revelation are two orders or two ways in which God has revealed himself to us. This is the true light that enlighteneth every man coming into the world. It matters not whether we read Pantvov with light or with man, the senses or one. It is either that the light that is coming into this world enlighteneth every man, or that this light enlighteneth every man at his coming into this world. In the latter sense it affirms that every man at his birth shares this light, in the former it affirms that every man is born into the light which already pervades all things and envelopes him as soon as he is born into it. But this light is the reason or intelligence by which man is the image of God. Men are six jog, the light of reason and conscience are a revelation written upon man as man. Man is a revelation in unto himself. All that I have hitherto said is within the order of nature. God, by the light of reason, makes himself known to me. The light and sense of conscience make known to me his law. There is a natural religion, a natural theology, a natural legislation, founded on natural morality. All this is the same in all men, at all times, and in all lands, and is from God. It is a revelation of himself by the things that he has made and supremely by man, his chief work in the likeness of his own nature. Therefore in knowing ourselves we know him. 12. Now it follows that in the measure in which any man uses this light and turns to its origin he is the more enlightened. In the measure in which he fails to use this light and turns from its origin he deprives himself of light and is darkened. This is evident in the Oriental, the Greek, and the Roman worlds. And it is also evident that in proportion to their higher intellectual and moral culture, their theology, and their ethics, though deeply stained, were theoretically higher and purer. In fact, it was the force of these truths that elevated them in any degree, and in the measure of their elevation they saw more clearly their own nature and its witness for God and for his law. On the other hand, if man has ever been found without the knowledge of God, as some would tell us of Fijians and Boschmen, he has been found in the lowest state moral and physical degradation. As in the natural world, light is the condition of life, growth, fertility, perfection, and the loss of light is the cause of sickliness, withering, sterility and death, so in the intellectual and moral worlds, Man without the knowledge of God is degraded, homo sine cognition idiopecus. If the knowledge of God were lost, the whole rational creation would be lowered to mere animal life. 13. The same reason that constrains me to perceive that God has made himself known to me by the lights of nature, constrains me also to believe that he has added to those lights by supernatural revelation. And, inasmuch as the knowledge of God is necessary for my happiness, and inasmuch as ignorance darkens even the natural light, and the passions of men obscure the knowledge of God, therefore he has by supernatural revelation added both light and certainty to truths necessary for our moral perfection, and therein for our welfare and happiness. What my inward witness testifies, the history of the world confirms.
human history tells us that there is a revelation superadded to the light of nature, and therefore in itself supernatural. It exceeds or transcends the light of nature, and brings within our knowledge truths beyond the horizon of natural revelation. There is no traceable time when men have not believed that they were encompassed and enlightened by such a revelation. The lights of natural and supernatural revelation together penetrate the whole nature of man, both his intellect and his will. His intellect in the form of truth, his will in the form of law, that is, of dogma and of morals which are inseparable and cannot be either opposed or parted. Supernatural revelation has come to man in manifold ways. First, to those who use aright the light of nature it cannot be doubted that light is added both by use and by gift. Next, we have the historical record of the words of men to whom were given supernatural lights for the instruction or approof of men and of nations. Such is the revelation to Abraham and the patriarchs, to Moses and the twelve tribes of Israel. I take this for a time as mere human history. They declared themselves to be prophets, and they were accepted as such. By this supernatural revelation, I am still speaking historically, I am told that God made himself known, that is, his self-existence, I am who am, and his unity, and spirituality, and his moral perfections which are a law to himself and also to all who bear his likeness. By this knowledge of God men had the means of advancing towards their own perfection, and of attaining to their proper happiness. Finally, we come to Christianity of which in the words of its records we read that, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. Asterisk all previous revelation was, as S. Augustine says, crepuscular circumflex or as the twilight before the morning. In the incarnation of the eternal Son the knowledge of God was given to man in meridian fullness. I am not as yet arguing that Christianity is true, I quote it only to show that from the beginning of the history of the world there has been a steady unfolding of the light of the knowledge of God. The light has expanded itself gradually until it is said to have reached its noontide in the manifestation of God in our manhood. If this be so then we cannot fail of the knowledge of God necessary for our perfection and happiness except through our own fault. What my reason and conscience dictate, namely that God would make himself known to me, I find according to human history to be fulfilled. If God asterisk 2. Gore. 4. 6 had made me capable of knowing him and of needing to know him for my happiness, and had hid himself from me, on God's part it would have been merciless, and on my part it would have been a plea for all disorder or despair. It would be an argument against the goodness of God. 14. If any man say, neither my inward consciousness nor the outward world convince me of the goodness of what you call the first cause or creator of all things. I see so much disorder, violence, misery, and suffering in the world, and that evil prevails over what you call good, and preponderates in the phenomena of the lower and of the human world that I come to a conclusion contrary to yours. Either the author of all things did not will the ascendancy of good, or he had not power to give it the ascendant. When such reasoners are reminded that man is a free agent, and that the world is what it is because man has marred what God has made, some will deny the freedom of the will altogether. 
they will say that the will is determined by the end at which it aims, forgetting the aimer, or that it is controlled by feelings or mental states which precede its determination, that is to say in other words, that the will is not free, or that the will is not a will, that it is titular signery, that to believe in our freedom will is a lifelong, hourly illusion which we pass upon ourselves. We think we are free, but we are necessitated, we think we have a will, but it has no power of election or of self-determination. It is a cumulus of feelings elicited by an end which fixes our moral action. The evil in the world then, such reasoners conclude, is not from the abuse of the free will of man. Evil and suffering do not spring from human action but inflict themselves upon men. And the author of nature either will not or cannot help it. 15. If this reasoning be sincere, it means that man is a machine, that it is an illusion to think that we are moral agents. If any man should say, I am not a moral agent but a machine, my acts are necessitated, I do not choose them or will them, I am beyond my own control, he would not only be difficult to argue with, but dangerous to live with. Metaphysicians of such a kind ought to be treated by the mosaic law of leprosy. Happily they are few, the human race bears witness to the power of the will and to its freedom. We deliberately select the ends for which we act, and often for reasons which determine us to choose the least attractive or even the most repulsive. We often act deliberately against the whole cumulus of our antecedent feeling and affections on the sole dictate of reason and of conscience. 16. Given then the freedom of the human will and the dominion that God has permitted to man over the course of this world, the preponderance of evil and of suffering, if it were so, which is not granted is at once removed from the divine will, and traceable to the human. The whole course of human history is the record of the freedom of the human will. The evil and suffering which deface the world are the tears of man's sowing, the supersemination of a free will turned from good to evil. The face of the world is a look of anguish because man has marred what God has made. Thus far I have argued as if it were to be granted that the witness of the world as to the goodness of its author is obscure or ambiguous. 17. But I believe the truth to be peremptorily on the other side. First, we will take the inanimate world, its beauty, its fruitfulness, its beneficence to all living things, above all to man who is sustained by its abundance of good, this realm of the world retains to this hour its primeval order and its inexhaustible fertility of good. So men believed of old, and said, God has not left himself without a witness doing good from heaven, giving our rains and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Asterisk certainly in this region of the natural world goodness reigns supreme. Asterisk Acts 14. 1 6. Next, in the lower realms of the animal world every creature after its kind obeys the laws of its nature. Instincts are to them as prudence is to man, a reigning principle of action. They have a signal temperance in all the actions and needs of their animal sustenance and life. They have fortitude and an uncomplaining endurance. For justice it may be said that they never sin against God, their nature being irrational they are irresponsible. The dumb creatures never offend in tongue. It has been said, if any man offend not in word, the same is also a perfect man and able to govern his whole body, but in this the speechless are sinless. 
In this whole realm of the world evil has no place, and its witness for the goodness of its author is complete. But perhaps someone will say, if there is not evil in the lower animals there is suffering. One half of them preys upon the other half. The ferocity of lions and panthers bears no witness to mercy or to goodness. The teeth of the carnivorous races show that they are by nature ferocious, man is carnivorous, and men have been, as in Australia, and still are in Oceania, cannibals. But will anybody say that this proves the natural ferocity of man, and the absence of goodness in the Creator? That the author of nature should have willed that fish should be the food of fish, and a key or an antelope the food of lions, no more disproves the goodness of the Creator than that oxen and sheep should be the food of man. I never heard the goodness of God denied because it is lawful to eat meat. I must affirm then that the whole animate world bears witness to the goodness of its maker. Lastly, we come to the world of human life. And here it is not to be denied that the only creature who sins against God is he whom God has made most like to himself. It is by this very nature, made to the divine image with intelligence and heart and will, that man offends him. The weapon of offense is his own likeness. If we were unlike him, we could not offend him. Man turns the image of God against himself. He offends him by the intellect in falsehood and unbelief, he offends him by the heart in loving what he ought to hate and hating what he ought to love, he offends him by the will, by an obedience, disobedience, and malice. 18. It is man then that has marred the world and the witness of goodness which God has made. Nevertheless, under all its defacement, the rays of the goodness of God shine through. The divine goodness gazes upon us through all our sorrows, disfigurement, and dishonor, as the Son of God gazed upon Peter. Peter went out and wept bitterly. But men now meet the radiance of the divine beauty as Caiaphas met the sacred countenance looking on him through the stains of the divine blood and the coursing of the tears and the contraction of the brow, with the steady gaze of heartless unbelief. They say, there is no beauty that we should desire him, there can be no goodness where there are wounds and sorrow. If the world of human life shows but a faint witness for the goodness of God it is because we have disfigured it by our own sins. 19. The sum of what has hitherto been said is this, my reason and my moral sense tell me that the cause and author of my being is good, benevolent, beneficent, and just. He has made me like himself in this, that goodness, benevolence, beneficence, and justice are the laws of my being and the only source of my happiness. If I be evil, malevolent, malignant, unjust, I must be miserable and make all others within my reach share my misery. God wills me to be happy, the knowledge alone of himself is the condition of my happiness. I would then as soon believe that he has made me capable of hunger and thirst and has put both food and water out of my reach as that he has not given me the means of knowing him. But he has neither parched me with thirst nor starved me with hunger, the whole world in all its streams and in all its fruits ministers to me like a servant in my house. Much more than I believe that he has put within my reach the means of slaking on my intellectual and moral thirst and to satisfy my spiritual hunger. And this is by a twofold revelation, natural and supernatural, of himself. Even a priori this argument would raise a high probability, but it here rests upon an induction founded upon the observed facts of history, 
and the moral nature of man. My reason and my moral sense alike constrain me to believe that this revelation is Christianity. I it may be taken, I believe, as undeniable that so far as the history of the world reaches, mankind has always believed in both natural and supernatural revelation, and therefore in a religion. By religion I mean a belief in the existence of God the Creator, Lawgiver, and Judge of men, of the soul as distinct from the body of the moral reason or moral sense which we call conscience, of the immutable distinction of right and wrong, of justice and of injustice, of truth and falsehood, of our responsibility, of our personal survival after the death of the body, that is in the immortality of the soul, and in reward or punishment after death. 2. That this belief is abundantly manifest in the records of the Greek world needs no proof. Every Greek scholar knows it. For those who do not read Greek, Bellinger's Gentile and Jew will be enough. 3. That it is to be found pervading the Roman world is equally certain, as the Latin literature abundantly shows. 4. That a religion was universal in the great Oriental world has in the last thirty years been unfolded to us by the study of its sacred books and traditions. This also is beyond all doubt. 5. That such was the belief of the Hebrew world with an amplitude and explicitness exceeding that of every other race or nation is proved at this day by a twofold witness, first, by the Hebrew books called the Old Testament, secondly, by the living presence of the Jewish people, which in its worldwide dispersion, always surviving through the vicissitudes of the ancient and modern world, preserves to this hour its witness and testimony by its own isolated and yet imperishable existence among the nations. 6. The historical books and records of these four worlds contain all that we know of the history of mankind. To reject them is not to reason, but to shut our eyes to facts. 7. They all four conspire in bearing witness to, I, the existence of God, 2, the moral nature of man, 3, the law of morality both in this life and after death. D8. And these three points contain the surah of religion or revelation natural and supernatural, that is to say, I, of theology, or the knowledge of God, 2, of anthropology, or the knowledge of man, 3 of ethics or morality arising from the relations of man with God and of man with man. 9. It is often said by certain well-meaning people that there is truth in all religions. This appears to me to be an inversion of the truth. There is only one religion, natural and supernatural, which has come down from the beginning, and this if neither innate nor connate is at least inseparable from the intellectual and moral tradition of the human race. This is the light that enlighteneth every man coming into the world. 10. And this one tradition, descending from a single source, has run in four streams, and has been tinged and tainted by the soil of its several channels. In the Oriental and Greek and Roman worlds it was almost buried in human accretions, polytheistic, idolatrous, pantheistic, the light shone in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. It is confusion then to say that in all religions there is truth. Religion is one, not many, and the one only religion imperishably pervaded the darkest aberrations of the human intellect, it has been and is universal in all times, and amongst all the races of mankind. 
the grossest idolatries bear witness to the belief in God. If there had been no belief in God there would have been nothing to corrupt. The altar to the unknown God proved the belief in his existence and the corruptions of polytheism proved beyond contradiction that the belief in God was inextinguishable. Lactantius says that so overwhelming to the intellect of men was the infinite of God, that they could only apprehend it by dividing his immensity and by multiplying divine but subordinate beings. 11. With this tradition of the whole human race recorded in the historical books of the Oriental, the Greek, the Roman, the Hebrew worlds it appears to me to be trifling, not reasoning, to talk of Bosch men and Australians. Even Fetish worship proves the belief in a supernatural and divine being as surely as base coin proves the existence of a true currency. Is mankind sightless because some men are blind? Or irrational because some are idiots? Kant tells us that theology is the infantine state of the human intellect. Therefore, according to Kant, a belief in God is at least primitive. 12. A primeval religion then has descended universally and imperishably, though it has been obscured and overlaid with superstition, that is by the accretions of human thought. But the belief came first, the superstition came after. It was a decline of light. And the intellectual and moral decline of men and of nations followed. If any races be found, I do not believe that any can without belief in God, they are also degraded races, their state is neither primeval nor normal, it is exceptional, unnatural, and abnormal. 13. But though decline is manifest in the Oriental, Greek, Roman, and even in the Hebrew world, nevertheless the tradition of the knowledge of God has been always steadily rising towards a culminating point. 14. And the culminate point of all lights, natural and supernatural, that is of the twofold revelation of God is to be found in Christianity. 15. Christianity consists of two elements, the one essential and eternal, the other positive and transient. For the present I lay aside the latter. The essence of Christianity is given in the following words, which I do not quote yet as proof, much less as divine, but simply as an authoritative summary of Christianity by its author, this is eternal life that they may know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Asterisk, I, the first essential element of Christianity asterisk yes John 17. 3. Is the knowledge of the true God, and the true knowledge of the true God. These are not equivalent propositions, for we may know the true God and yet not know him truly. Revelation notwithstanding, our knowledge may be narrow, inadequate, or tinged with erroneous thought, for instance, dens inexorabilis dens calvini. The light of nature teaches the eternal power and the divinity of God, asterisk that is, his unity, infinity, eternity, and uncreated being. The Greek world obscured this natural light by sensuous anthropomorphism, the Roman world obscured it by still grosser superstition. The Hebrew world taught the spirituality of God and his perfections of wisdom, goodness, justice, compassion, benevolence, and charity. Christianity received all these primeval and supernatural lights as in a focus and gave them back again with an accession of light direct from God himself. I still quote as from a human hand only the following words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God.
And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. F16. Revelations of God have pervaded all times. Asterisk Romans I 20. T.S. John I. I. 14. Library St. Mary's College Enoch walked with God, not in silence, God spoke to him before he took him. He revealed himself to Noah and to Job, who was not of the race of Abraham, and to his friends also who were Madianites, and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to the king of Babylon, and to Nineveh. But none of these came within the Hebrew world. Spiritus Domini replevit orbum terrera, et hoc quod continent omnia scientium geobetphysis. The whole world was and is full of the revelation of himself, not only in his visible works, but in the intelligence of mankind with which he has held converse enveloping men in his presence and making them to know his voice. 17. Again, 1800 years ago it was believed that, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Asterisk that as in a person of absolute perfection. Christianity further taught that, God is charity. God is a spirit. God is light. Mankind had never otherwise known God so truly and so luminously as it did by these words. The knowledge of God as revealed by Christ is the purest the most perfect knowledge that the world has ever heard of its divine author. I am still speaking of asterisk 2. Gore. 4. 6. Christianity only as history and as the most perfect philosophy. 18. The second essential element of Christianity is the knowledge of man or anthropology. The most perfect humanity the world ever saw was the manhood of the founder of Christianity. And here the argument so elaborately wrought out in the book Eki Homo seems to me beyond all contradiction. The traditional conception of the character of Jesus Christ, considered strictly and only in a human and historical sense, seems also to me to place the nature of man before us in its highest perfection. The mythical argument of Strauss, also, is an affirmation of this fact. Though the two witnesses do not agree together they prove my point. I need not quote any Christian witness, first because he would be suspected, and, secondly, because from the cloud of witnesses it would be difficult to choose. 19. The third essential element of Christianity is its morality or ethical system. Christianity contains and sums up the whole moral law as known by the lights of nature, and as promulgated with increased light and interpretation in the law of the Hebrew world. We are still treating the Old Testament only as history. The Decalogue was not a new enactment. It was a declaratory statute republishing the ancient legislation from the beginning of the world. It had never been lawful to have more gods than one, or to kill, or to steal, or to bear false witness, or to covet what belongs to others. Even the seventh day was sacred from the beginning. The Decalogue only brought the primeval law to remembrance, and reenacted it under penalties. So far Judaism was as old as creation. The penal code of the Hebrew world was indeed severe. But its domestic legislation was merciful beyond any other ancient example. For instance, the prohibition of usury, the forbidding to take of a poor man and pledge the stone with which he ground his corn, 
or his cloak, except under obligations to restore it at sunset that he might sleep in it, the prohibition to glean the harvest field, or to go twice over the vines or the olive trees, in order that the remainder might be left for the poor and the stranger and the widow. It was forbidden moreover to see the kid in its mother's milk, or to muzzle the ox that trod the corn. The laws of the Hebrew world are pervaded by this spirit of refined care, for the weak and for the poor. They are instinct with a human sympathy that, so far as I know, has no precedent or parallel in any other moral code. 20. We need not speak of the moral codes of the Greek and of the Roman worlds. They bear no comparison even with the morality of the Hebrew law, much less with the Christian. 21. The moral code of Christianity contains all the laws of justice, mercy and charity known from the beginning of the world. The two tables of the old law lay down the relation of man to God and of man to man. The first table defines the duties which spring from our relation to God, the second the duties which spring from our relation to man. But these duties are again summed up in two precepts, the love of God with our whole heart, and the love of our neighbor as ourselves. And these once more are abbreviated in one commandment, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Asterisk, greater love than this no man hath, that a man lay down his life for his friends. F. In this there is only one reserve, we cannot lay down the life of the soul for anyone, not even for the whole world. We cannot for the sake of another violate our moral reason or the immutable law of right and truth, for this would be self-murder. Short of this, the law of Christian love, which is the law of liberty, prompts and urges us to give ourselves in behalf of others. Asterisk S. John 13. 34. JSJCHN 15. 13. 22. It is a venturous thing to say that such a moral code has never been found before the Christian law was given, but I may say that I do not know where to find it, until it is found I may deny its existence, the non apparentibus et non existentibus mist ratio, and this I may say without fear that if anything like or equal to the morality of the Christian law can be found, nothing higher can be found. All that is high, pure, just, merciful, ennobling and for the glory of God is to be found in the Christian law, all that was true and right in the religious traditions of the world culminates in Christianity. In the last century this was so fully admitted even by the adversaries of Christianity that a book was published against it under the title, Christianity as old as the creation. But though all the lights of the old world culminate in Christianity, they are only the prelude in the promise of the revelation and order of divine facts of which the incarnation is the fullness. For the present, however, I am only treating Christianity as the highest fact in human history, and in the progress of mankind. 23. But it may be said that this does not prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. Most true. We have not yet come to that question. They who deny the existence of a creator by necessity deny all revelation. But they who believe that we are neither in create nor self-created, and with such only my business is now, must admit a creator. I affirm then that all the works of the creator are a revelation of himself, and chiefly and above all man whom he made to his own image. 
he has revealed himself by man and in man. We read him in ourselves. In knowing ourselves we come to know him. And this knowledge is not a creation or a discovery of ours, but an illumination from him. And this illumination pours in upon us from the works which he has made, procuce factus tint. The whole intellectual system of the world bears witness to him, but that witness is the light which, coming from himself, reveals him to the whole rational creation. When Gentiles who have not the law do by nature those things that are of the law, these having not the law are a law to themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts and their conscience, bearing witness to them and their thoughts between themselves, accusing or also defending one another. Asterisk the order of nature, then, is full of revelation. It is the first chapter in the great book of theology. Asterisk Romans 2. 14, 15. 24. The difference between the revelation recorded in the old Hebrew scriptures and the knowledge of God that has existed always from the beginning and everywhere outside of the Hebrew world is not that the Hebrew world had a revelation and the rest of the world had none, but that the Hebrew world had direct, explicit, accredited, and continual communications of divine knowledge in a degree and measure which were not given to the rest of mankind. As the Apostle says, they had the law, and the priesthood, and the promises. They were the type and the forerunner and the earnest of what was to come. They were the transient shadows of an abiding substance. The knowledge of God, of man, and of morals in the Hebrew world was in purity, in truth, and in nobleness, beyond all that the world had ever heard of or imagined. It was the culminating point of all the lights of natural religion and morality. Nothing true existed out of it which was not also within it, and whereas the truths which existed out of it were scattered and obscured, and, as it were, wanderers and strangers upon earth, in the Hebrew world they were restored to their own home and sanctuary, and liberated from bondage and human error. 25. I am not aware that anyone as yet has been hardy enough to prefer the theology or the morals of the Greek, or Roman or oriental worlds to the faith and morality of the Old Testament. It is next to be noted that the Hebrew world referred its whole law and commonwealth and its very existence to a theocracy with a minute, constant recognition of the divine presence and will. 26. If it be said in answer that orientals, Greeks, and Romans claim a divine origin, I accept the fact in proof that the belief of revelation is common to man, and that which is common to man is in possession as the intellectual system and tradition of mankind. This answer I gladly welcome and add it to my argument. It comes then to this, that the whole world has believed in divine revelation. Socrates would add, therefore the whole world has believed in God, for, as he said, who would believe in saddles and bridles and deny the existence of horses? My affirmation, then, is founded on this answer. The world has been full of revelation and the Hebrew commonwealth was the culminating point till the higher came. The Oriental theism, the mythology of the Iliad, of the Antigon, of the circumflex Sinaid, had its true interpretation in the law and prophets of Israel. We may well believe that their scriptures were among the Pekul Traxade 7 slash Oa circumflex Oara of which Plato speaks. A belief, then, of the presence and power of God, 
of his law and government, of the descent of men from the divine, sometimes by creative power, sometimes by monstrous fiction, a consciousness of responsibility, and a sense of retribution, all this and much more filled the minds of men with the faith that God had spoken and was speaking continually to them, that he was revealing himself both in word and act. And this faith is witnessed in all its fullness by the Hebrew people, no longer to be called a Hebrew world, but the cloud of witnesses now scattered among all nations and imperishable in their testimony to the revelation of God to man. 28. I take leave, therefore, to affirm that from the beginning of the world down to the advent of Christianity, the whole race of mankind believed not only in the existence of God, but in his revealing himself to man. And further I take leave to affirm that as this belief and all that it truly testified is to be found culminating in the faith of the Hebrew people, so also the faith of patriarchs, prophets, and seers, and the whole revelation of the old law is to be found culminating in the new law, which is Christianity. To this antecedent revelation Christianity has superadded two divine facts with all their consequences, first the mission and advent of the Son. Seconded the mission and advent of the Holy Ghost. 29. If the essential and universal witness of the whole Christian world at this day does not suffice to prove the coming of Jesus Christ, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, the commission given to the apostles, their belief of the divine personality of their master, and of the guidance of the Spirit of Truth, by whose authority they acted, that is to say, that both their mission and their message came to them by divine revelation, if, I say, this witness of Christendom as a human and historical proof be not sufficient, then I would add that history is of less worth than an old almanac. Then nothing would be credible beyond the reach of my arm or the sight of my eyes. If nothing can be received on trust, why should I believe in the existence of Byzantium or in the invasion of Britain by Julius Caesar? human society and the most vital truths in the life of man come to us on hearsay. But the hearsay of the Christian world is a tradition universal and identic in every place, affirmed and believed to be divine, and traceable upwards in unbroken succession to the hour in which the testimony of twelve men laid the foundation of the testimony not of twelve nations only, but of the whole Christian world. Schlegel said well that the witness of the Christian world is the maximum of evidence in history. If this be not a motive of credibility sufficient to make a prudent man responsible, what can be so short of a separate revelation to each man who is pleased to doubt? 30. If the statutes at large presuppose and prove the existence of the British Empire, and if the history of our kings from Alfred downward proves the succession of our monarchy, who can reject the witness of the Universal Church, testified by its worldwide legislation, its nineteen councils, the unbroken succession of its visible head? The light of the world needs no further evidence than its own splendor. Daylight needs no tapers of ours. It is evident because it looks out upon us. We see it because it casts its light upon us. It is self-evident because it is luminous and light is its own witness. The universal churches, as the Vatican Council declares, the witness of its own legation. It needs no accrediting to the powers of darkness, nor any credentials beyond its own four notes. 
all other evidence would be proving the certain by the less certain, the manifest by the obscure. It bears witness of its own divine origin and it affirms that its message is the voice of God, revealing himself to man. This is the declaration which we have heard from him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Asterisk lastly, then I affirm that whatsoever in the primeval and imperishable revelations of God from the beginning is certain, pure, and necessary for the perfection and happiness of man is to be found with manifold certainty, greater purity, and perfect fullness in Christianity. Some philosophers have invited our admiration by telling us that it is possible to conceive a sphere in which two and two may make five, and bodies may have a fourth dimension. No sphere or state, however, is conceivable in which the knowledge of the creator, of the creature, and of the relations which unite them, shall not be the condition of all good. And this is summed up by our divine master in these few words, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Christianity, then, is the morning light of the eternal noon.